0: Earlier this week, I was reminded of a college admissions essay that I ran across a few years ago. One of the most famous college admissions essays of all time. It was written by a high school senior by the name of Hugh Gallagher, written around 1990. And the prompt that he was given was, Are there any significant experiences you have had or accomplishments you have realized that have helped to define you as a person? Now, he actually submitted this to some different colleges. I'm just going to read excerpts from it this morning. Hugh Gallagher wrote, I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I have been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I am an expert in stucco, a veteran in love and an outlaw in Peru. Using only a hoe and a large glass of water, I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon basin from a horde of ferocious army ants. I play bluegrass cello. I am the subject of numerous documentaries. I am an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I am a private citizen, yet I receive fan mail. I can hurl tennis rackets at small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening. I have performed several covert operations for the CIA. I sleep once a week. When I do sleep, I sleep in a chair. The laws of physics do not apply to me. I have won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I have played Hamlet, I have performed open-heart surgery, and I have spoken with Elvis, but I have not yet gone to college. And that's how he ends his essay. I read that and I thought, man, it's brilliant because you come away from that believing that Hugh Gallagher is qualified to go to college. And of course, his point is, I am not only qualified, I am the most qualified on the planet to go to your college. The reason I share that is because as we Move through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew has a very similar purpose when we talk about Jesus. Matthew's task is to demonstrate to us that not only is Jesus qualified to be the king of Israel, but he's more qualified than anybody in history. Not only to be the king of Israel, but to be the king of the world. And so Matthew lays out that reality for us stage by stage as we move through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you remember, last week we began the Gospel of Matthew by talking about the genealogies and the birth narratives of Jesus. And Matthew showed us how Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David, right? Jesus has come to fulfill God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham's descendants, there would come somebody who would bless all of the nations. And then he fulfills the promises God made to David, that one of David's descendants would be a king, a mighty king known as the Messiah, right? The anointed one who would reign as God's perfect king and draw all the nations to God's light, that there would be this perfect king who would come and reign in righteousness and justice and peace. And if you remember, we talked about how through all of the Old Testament, the people of God, the nation of Israel, they were waiting for this king. And king after king after king after king arrived on the scene and king after king disappointed the people. They all failed in one way or the other. Even the greatest kings of Israel, like David and Solomon, failed to meet God's standards. So, Matthew makes the case that all of the waiting is over in Jesus. The expectations you have for a king are fulfilled in Jesus. As we move into Matthew 3 and 4 this morning, we're going to see the first stories that Matthew gives us from Jesus' adult life uh, the baptism of Jesus, and then Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And in both of these uh, stories from Jesus' adult life, Matthew is going to demonstrate to us this, that Jesus' nature and character uniquely qualify him to be the Messiah. Jesus' nature and character uniquely qualify him to be the Messiah. What Matthew's going to lay out all through his book is that because Jesus is perfectly God and perfectly human, he is a king who can perfectly represent God's character and God's values, but he's also a king who can represent us who can understand us. So he has the power to reign as God's king, but he also has the humility and the compassion to care for the subjects of God's kingdom. And in fact, to qualify us, ultimately the subjects of God's kingdom, to enter into God's kingdom. Because we're not qualified like Jesus is qualified. But we'll see is that Jesus, as this perfect king, is gonna reach down to you and me And offer to draw us in to his kingdom. And really the main question then that Matthew is going to leave us with as we look at Jesus is this. Will we submit to King Jesus and agree to the terms of his kingdom? In other words, if you and I were planning a kingdom out, it would probably be a kingdom like Really all of the kingdoms of this world where the strongest, the smartest, the wealthiest, the, the best people get to reign at the top of the heap. When Jesus comes, he's going to say, no, nobody is smart enough. Nobody is good enough. Nobody is wealthy enough. Nobody has the qualifications to even be a subject of Jesus' kingdom. So Jesus is going to ultimately say the only way to get in is through me. The only way to get in is to allow the king to qualify you. The only way to get in is to recognize you are unqualified and to come through King Jesus and agree to his values, agree to his terms for his kingdom. That's what we'll see. And as we walk through again, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus, we will see John announce this king in a way that clues us in to the reality that Jesus' kingdom is like no other. And then in the temptation, we will see Jesus prove that he is who John the Baptist says he is. He is who God says he is. And he's uniquely qualified. Leaving us then as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk about that next week. Leaving us with this question. Will we submit to King Jesus and agree to the terms of his kingdom? The fundamental question out of Matthew 3 and 4 is going to be, are we willing to allow our values and beliefs about God? to be reshaped by Jesus? Are we willing to allow what we think God's world ought to be, are we willing to allow those opinions and thoughts to be reshaped by Jesus? Whether it's our opinions about what we do with our time, our money, our energy, who we are, or whether it's our opinions about politics and things like refugees and what the government ought to do. Will we allow all of that to be reshaped by the values of Jesus Christ? Will we submit to King Jesus, and agree to the terms of his kingdom. That's going to be the essence of the baptism and temptation story. So I want to start in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1. We have a lot of text we're going to read this morning, so bear with me. I think it'll be worth it as we move through. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, "'Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.'" For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey, yum. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom... I am well pleased. So here at Jesus' baptism, we see two announcements. The first one is John the Baptist's announcement of the king. The second one is God himself. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness, and he is a pretty hardcore guy. John wears camel's hair, and he eats locusts and wild honey. It wasn't too uncommon for those who were poor in those days who could not get other types of food to catch and eat locusts. John dips them in honey, apparently to make them a bit more palatable. But here's a guy who has chosen to identify with the poor and the humble of the land, and he's a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. And he goes out in the wilderness and he begins to preach this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And like we talked about last week, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because the king is here. Right now, I want to be clear here. John is not preaching that this is what you guys need to do in order to go to heaven. Right. And here's why. Because Jesus had not yet been crucified or risen again. Right. So John is not preaching what we think of when we say in order to have eternal life, you have to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right. Instead, John is teaching to a very specific group of people at a very specific time in the history of Israel. He's preaching to Israelites who are under the law of Moses that we talked about last week. And here's what he's saying. You guys have been waiting for the kingdom of God. You've been looking for that king for thousands of years and he's here. You need to get ready. And the way you're going to get ready, he says, is repent. And what does he mean by repent? Well, you turn away from your rejection of God's values and you turn toward what God is doing. You submit your values to the values of God's kingdom. Right. Repent is fundamentally a word that means to change your mind or to turn from one thought process or course of action toward another. And John says, Israel, you guys need to get ready. And then he baptizes them to symbolize their repentance. What is John saying? Purify yourself as a nation and return to a faithful obedience of God's law in preparation for the king. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are standing there, and they're no doubt thinking, hey, we're good, right? Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees had hundreds of commandments related to God's law, and they believed because they obeyed them all in detail that they didn't actually need to repent. And so John calls them a brood of vipers, and he says, you all believe that just because you're descended from Abraham and because you keep the law externally, you're good. But the king who is coming is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit because what needs to be transformed, and we'll see this, is not just what you do, but what you are. So John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get yourself ready. I was thinking this week about how uh, occasionally my wife will go out of town for a weekend whether it's to a conference or with a friend or whatever it may be, and I'll be at home and it's my responsibility at home to take care of the kids and to take care of the house, right? So I have to feed them and make sure they don't injure themselves in any way, make sure they're wearing clothes, all of these things. And I'm supposed to try to make sure that the house maintains some semblance of order, right? Doing all of that by oneself is difficult, right? So as the weekend continues, what happens? Well, I keep the children alive, But the house moves into a downward spiral. It gets messier and messier. But I realize at some point that judgment day is near. The day is coming when she will return. That usually occurs to me right around Saturday afternoon. That we better do something to purify this abode before she returns. I don't actually usually start doing anything about it until Sunday afternoon afternoon couple hours before she returns, right? And we begin a mad scramble to clean the house and we do our best, right? Because we realize that no matter what we do, it will probably not meet the standards of the one who is coming, right? There is not going to be a level of clean that will be appropriate for her level of clean, right? But we try, we prepare, we get ready. We purify as best as we can, That's what John is saying, nation of Israel, The one who is coming has standards you cannot meet. But what John is calling them to do is place their mind and their heart in a state of readiness to receive what Jesus is going to bring. Get ready to submit to his kingdom values. Be baptized to symbolize your repentance. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were proud hearted See, they, they obeyed externally, but they didn't think they needed repentance. And so they get the harshest condemnation, not only here from John, but throughout the Gospel of Matthew and really all of the Gospels. Because they're unwilling to submit to King Jesus. All right, so John announces Jesus, Right, and then, of course, Jesus himself shows up. And when Jesus shows up, I love this part where Jesus shows up because what I love about it is John's confusion. Jesus comes and he says, John, I need you to baptize me. And you can just see the wheels turning in John's head. He's like, wait, wait, wait. You're the one that I've been announcing, right? You're the king. You're not the one that needs to repent, right? But Jesus says, permit it at this time to fulfill all righteousness. And here's what Jesus is getting at. Yes, Jesus doesn't need to repent. Jesus has done nothing wrong Ever. Right? He's God in the flesh. But Jesus is saying, John, I will identify myself with God's program. Right? As the leader of God's people, I'm not too proud to go under the water and say, John is preaching what is true, and I will lead out in being baptized to indicate I'm on board with whatever God is doing. I submit to whatever God is doing even as the king, the king becomes the one who will lead. And so John announces Jesus. Then Jesus is baptized. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, the spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We have the testimony of God about Jesus' deity. And we have the reality of Jesus' humanity and his humility all in one passage. And so right from this baptism moment, we see that Jesus is a king like no other. He's not a king who's going to first come to enforce his way with an army or with laws or by putting people in prison. But first and foremost is a king who will come. To identify with his subjects in what God is doing. And yet he is also a king who is uniquely positioned as God's representative because he is the beloved son of God. Now immediately after Jesus is announced, he goes out into the wilderness where he is tested and tempted by Satan. I want to look at chapter 4 now, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So after Jesus is announced as king, after God says, this is the one, he goes out into the wilderness where he proves that he's qualified to be what God has just said that he is. Right? It's not that God doubted Jesus was qualified. It's not that Jesus doubted that Jesus was qualified. It's that you and I need to know that Jesus would pass the test that everybody else has failed. Right, I don't know if you've ever had to take an entrance exam, maybe for college or for a graduate program, right? and you've got to pass that test. You walk in and you are qualified, at least from the standpoint of knowing the information. The test simply demonstrates that you're qualified. Right? When I was a kid, uh, my older brother created a club, right, and the club really just involved initially him and one other friend from across the street. But I desperately wanted to be in that club. And so I had to demonstrate to my brother that I was qualified. So he came up with a series of initiation tests for me. And I had to walk along some uh, little bitty stones next to a garden without falling off. I failed, right? I fell and I cut my ankle. I had a scar for years. Uh, There were multiple tests that culminated in making and eating a mud pie, right? And I don't mean one with chocolate. I mean actual mud pie. I could not consume it all. For some reason, uh, Dan actually still let me into his club, right? But I had to show that I was qualified. Now, entering into the test, Jesus is already qualified to be the king. But he has to demonstrate that he will succeed where every other king of Israel has failed. Some of you have no doubt uh, seen the old Disney movie, The Sword and the Stone. And The Sword and the Stone is, of course, based on the old legend of King Arthur, right? And Uh, the, The legend was that only the rightful king of England could pull Excalibur, the sword, out of the stone. And so in this animated special from maybe 50 years ago, this child, King Arthur, walks up and he pulls the sword out of the stone. Nobody else can do it. Not the strongest person in England, only the rightful king. It's a supernatural test that he has to pass to demonstrate that he is qualified to be the king. Here in the desert, God has already announced, Jesus is my beloved son. John has said He is the king, and now Jesus goes into the desert and after fasting for 40 days, demonstrates that He is who God has said that He is, that He will be unlike any other king in Israel's history. All right, there's three temptations here. The first one, of course, is that after 40 days, Matthew tells us, Jesus fasted for 40 days, and then he became hungry. I always find that interesting because I'm usually hungry after like 40 minutes, not 40 days. Right, but Jesus fasts for 40 days and then he's hungry. And right at that moment of opportunity, the devil shows up to test the Son of God. And he comes and he says, if you are the Son of God. In other words, if you are who God just said you were. I want you to turn some of these stones into bread. You're hungry. You don't have to wait for sustenance. You are the Son of God. Just turn some of these stones into bread. And you initially read that and you think, well, what's what's the big deal, right? He is hungry, he is God. Why can't he just go around turning stuff into food, right? Anytime he wants to do it. And the reason is this, because as Jesus will answer, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Here's what Jesus is saying. As the King, as the appointed Messiah, I have to submit to my Father's will and trust him to meet my needs. And so Jesus right away will set a standard to say that the rightful king of Israel and the world will always trust his father, step by step, moment by moment. Now, the the passage that Jesus quotes comes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter eight, when Moses said to the people, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. What did Moses say to them? Well, remember in the wilderness, the nation of Israel had absolutely failed the test that Jesus just passed. The nation of Israel had been out in the wilderness just like Jesus, and they had an opportunity to trust God. And yet at every step, they doubted God. They complained. They did not think God would provide. And Moses says here, as he's reviewing their wilderness journey, remember that God gave you manna to remind you of this, that you do not receive sustenance from the food on your table. You receive your life from God. And so Jesus, to demonstrate what it looks like to perfectly represent a man who obeys his father, says, I receive what God chooses to give. And so Jesus will not use his prerogative to step outside of God's will. He will not use his prerogative to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Right? The kings of Israel throughout history had used their power to increase their own pockets, to fill their own stomachs, to satisfy their own physical lusts. And Jesus demonstrates right off the bat, I will be a different kind of, of king. Second temptation, the devil takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, look, if you throw yourself down, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself down and God will save you, right? Because it says he'll command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Right? Jesus again references back to the nation of Israel who constantly put God to the test. This language is used over and over and over and over again about the people of Israel. Look at Exodus chapter 17. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? They tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, the nation of Israel was always saying, if God is real, if God is present, he needs to prove himself to us. We need God to demonstrate that he's worthy of our worship. Jesus here says, no, I will not put God to the test by some demonstration that's only designed to show how great and powerful I am. I won't put God to the test. Again, we think about the kings of Israel. Some of the greatest kings of Israel, some of the good kings of Israel failed this test. Hezekiah was a great king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. He avoided idolatry, right? But he, he succumbed to pride. He showed off all of the treasures in the temple to the Babylonians who then came and took over the nation and plundered the treasure and went away. Uzziah, another good king who fell to pride when he entered into the temple and presumed to be the high priest and offer incense. And God struck him with leprosy. Josiah, another good king who went to battle with the Egyptians against the advice of God's prophet because he thought he could be that strong. All of these kings of Israel succumbed to this temptation to show how great they were at the expense of the good of God's people. And Jesus flips the script. The last temptation, the devil takes him up onto a high mountain, says, look, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus says, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Third temptation is idolatry to which the vast majority of the Israelites and the kings of the Israelites had given in throughout the generations to have earthly power, to have military might, but to worship idols and to worship the devil. Jesus says, I will not establish God's kingdom at the price of failing to worship God, right? Jesus says, God's king has to represent God's interests. So I will only worship him. And so Jesus passes all three of these tests where all the kings of Israel before him and the people of Israel before him had failed. And Jesus demonstrates he is uniquely qualified to be God's Messiah. He turns our ideas of what a kingdom ought to be on their head, right? Because if you were going to be king or queen of the world, you would operate probably, and I would operate probably just like almost every other king or leader operates. And that is I operate by force. I make people do what I want them to do so I can expand my power, and my greatness. And Jesus says, no, I will represent God's interests and then do something else. And that is, I will qualify the people of God to enter into the kingdom of God by showing them what it looks like to rely on God alone. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, says this, the temptation in the desert reveals a profound difference between God's power And Satan's power. Satan has the power to coerce, to dazzle, to force obedience, to destroy. Humans have learned much from that power, and governments draw deeply from its reservoir. With a bullwhip or a billy club or an AK 47, human beings can force other human beings to do just about anything they want. Satan's power is external and coercive. God's power, by contrast, is internal and non coercive in its commitment to transform gently from the inside out and in its relentless dependence on human choice. God's power may resemble a kind of abdication. Jesus demonstrates that the kingdom of God would first be built not by external force, but in the hearts and the minds of those who would trust in him. Right, before Jesus can reign in power, he has to deal with the problem of sin. What is it that ultimately topples nations and destroys government? It's violence and sin. Well, Jesus says, I will deal with the problem of sin beginning from the inside out so that the subjects of Jesus' kingdom represent the values of God's kingdom. And I'll show you how it's done right here in the wilderness in a showdown with Satan. Instead of battling him by force, I will battle him with the word of God and the spirit of God. And I find it fascinating that Jesus here in the wilderness doesn't actually do anything that the people of God cannot do with the power of the spirit. He just quotes scripture. He just recites Deuteronomy. I love that all of the passages Jesus cites are from Deuteronomy because I read this and I think, if my ability to resist temptation came down to my knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy, how would I do? Most of us would do poorly because we stopped reading around Numbers or Leviticus, right? That year-long plan went in the trash before we got to Deuteronomy. See, Jesus relying on the Spirit of God absorbs the word of God so deeply that in that moment of temptation, he's able to demonstrate he is qualified to be what God said he is. You may remember at the end of chapter three, we saw the spirit of God descending on Jesus like a dove. And this voice from the heaven proclaims who Jesus is. I found that interesting as I read this week because I couldn't help but notice a parallel between what's going on in Matthew 3 and 4 and this great prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. Let me show you Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Right, that's a reference to the Messiah. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now look at this. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I love that. John the Baptist is wearing a belt of camel's hair. Jesus wears a belt of righteousness. And the spirit of God rests on him and he begins to proclaim the wisdom and the knowledge of God as our great king and as our example of what it looks like for a representative of God to rely on the spirit of God and the word of God defeat every temptation that destroyed the kings and the people of Israel. And so Jesus emerges victorious from this temptation. And in the process he demonstrates not only is he qualified to be the king, but he is also qualified To qualify us. And here's what I mean. Jesus is perfectly God, yes. And of course, God is qualified to be the king of the universe. But as a man, Jesus knows exactly the temptations and the struggles that we have faced, right? Every sin you have ever dealt with, every temptation, Jesus as a human being understands it. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. He's been tempted as we are in every way, yet, yet without sin. And so because he's been tempted, yet without sin, he now can provide mercy and grace from the throne of God to help those in need. That's you and me. Right, now, now I want to I wanna trace this as we as we wrap up this morning, because I think this is significant to notice. The kingdom of God comes through the person of Jesus. Right? And remember, John had said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the people begin to be baptized, uh, desiring to demonstrate, I'm on board with the kingdom of the Messiah. But here's really the problem that they face. The problem they face is the same one that we face. They cannot be good enough to meet the standards that God sets through the Messiah. Right? We're going to see that as we get into the Sermon on the Mount next week. Jesus, in his first public sermon in the book of Matthew, lays out these standards of God. And if you can read the Sermon on the Mount without feeling some despair, then you're not reading it carefully. Right? Because he says things like, uh, you've heard it said that you should not murder. Right? And everybody goes, I haven't done that, I'm good. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. You go, wait a second, what's going on? I have to be that good in order to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus would say, yeah, your righteousness, in fact, he says it. your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. You say, that's impossible. This is where what we learn about Jesus from Matthew 3 and 4 is going to tie together. Because Jesus is a perfect representative of God as God, but also he's a human being who understands us. And the fact that Jesus is in the wilderness doing battle with the devil on our behalf tells us that this is a king who doesn't sit high on his throne, but does this. He stoops down to pick up his subjects and bring them into his kingdom. Right? And of course, as, as Matthew progresses, we'll see that the way that Jesus can save people from their inability and sin is to go to the cross to take the penalty for sin and to rise again to defeat death and sin. And then because we are cleansed when we believe in Jesus, because our sins are forgiven, now Jesus sends the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that descended on him at his baptism. That Spirit can live in us so that now we can be empowered to do what previously we could not do, which is obey God's will. Know God and be confident we have eternal life. And then through the power of the Spirit, resist temptation and represent God's values as a kingdom member. So Jesus is a king like no other. And Matthew is constantly asking this question. Will we submit to King Jesus and agree to the terms of his kingdom? You may be here this morning and you don't yet know God through Jesus Christ. And the message of Matthew over and over and over again is that Jesus is the only way to God. If you want to be a part of God's everlasting kingdom, if you want to have eternal life as the scripture talks about it, the only way to get there is through Jesus. Because Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin, our rebellion against God. He rose again. He defeated death, which is the great consequence of sin. And for all who trust in him, he promises eternal life in his kingdom. And then he sends the spirit. He says, if you trust in me, now what I'm asking you to do is through the power of the spirit, don't represent your own values in your life. In other words, don't make your decisions anymore based upon what you think you ought to do with your time, with your money, with your body. But now through the power of the spirit, you submit your values to the kingdom values of God. You submit your politics to the kingdom values of God. You submit your thoughts and your heart and your attitudes to the kingdom values of God day after day, just as Jesus did in the wilderness as he faced temptation from the devil. We rely on the Spirit of God to represent the character of God because Jesus, our great King, has qualified us to do so. That's good news. We now can do what we never could do before. And we are in process. And and that process of transformation will not be complete until the day we see Jesus and enter his kingdom. But we are being transformed. Step by step. By the power of the Spirit who lived in Jesus and who now lives in us. Will we submit to King Jesus then and agree with the terms and the values of his kingdom as we seek to represent him in our world? Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful for, most of all, Jesus, our Savior and our King. I Thank you for how Matthew demonstrates to us who Jesus is and what he did for us. Because Jesus is the great King. And we are sinful people. It's unfathomable to us that the great King of heaven would step off his throne and stoop down to rescue people who have rebelled against you. But we thank you. I pray we would rely upon your spirit to obey you and to reflect the values of your kingdom. I pray we'd be kingdom ambassadors whose citizenship is in heaven, but who dwell here, called to reflect you and proclaim the good news. We thank you, Father, for this time, and we thank you for your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.